And And just when you thought it couldn't get any more crazy here in Washington, just when you thought, no, they'll never shut down government. Well, happy government shutdown day, kids. It's Tuesday. Nothing could get stranger here in Washington. Oh, no, it just did. This is Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday. That means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is the Honorable Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. How are you today? Doing fantastic. To my 11 o'clock, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hi, Justin. Glad to be here. Oh, it's, we were going to have so much fun. To my 1 o'clock, she is the former House Counsel or Staff Counsel for the Homeland Security Committee in the House of Representatives for Homeland Security. She is the former uh, General Counsel for the Maritime Administration, Obama appointee. She's the Honorable Denise Krepp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my 3 o'clock, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count four presidents. He's a longtime Senate staffer and a very distinguished and handsome fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Justin, I am just so glad that there is no question in this group of who's essential and who's not essential. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we might have an I have table, to be, but we're I, all essential. No, we are all essential today. And to my right, ironically, he is the former executive director of the Democrat Party of the great state of Maryland. He is longtime Washington insider Carl Tugan. Hello, Hello, Justin. And I, I thought I might be furloughed today. <laughs> no, that's next week, actually. We just talked about that. Uh, and joining us in a, in a very great, great honor to have him here, he is the former uh, he is the former representative from the great state of Ohio. He is the former chairman of the uh, uh, Finance Services Committee. He is the author, house author of Sorbanes Oxley. He is the honorable... Congressman Mike Oxley. Congressman, Mr. Chairman, thank you for joining us today. Justin, it's an honor. This is fantastic. We actually have somebody who's got credibility joining us today. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) Hey, and speaking of credibility, you know who has zero credibility right now? Apparently the House. So in case you've been living under a rock or you're listening to us in Canada, which people do, um, as of midnight last night, uh, the government has effectively shut down. Any last-ditch attempts to have any sort of deal were put off by the House of Representatives uh, in in a great in a great display of kabuki dancing. The uh, Senate Secretary walking into the House saying, "Hey, we would like to have a deal," and they just go, "Go away! You bother us." It was fantastic. Uh, real quickly, I mean, we can ask the question, but uh, Chairman Oxley, I'm going to start with you. How did we get here? 
This is just bizarre. Well, it's not that bizarre, sadly. I mean, when Al and I went through this in 95, 94, 95, um, when, uh, when we closed the government down, actually twice, um, and again, in a little different circumstances, the fighter that, at that time was over budgetary matters and numbers, when, um, when the uh, Republicans had taken the majority in the 94 elections, first time in 40 years, and uh, there was a lot of uh, pent-up frustration, I think, on the Republican side um, with Clinton as president to try to uh, deal with the budget deficit. Uh, I would talk about the budget deficit today. It's amazing. We're talking about trillions of dollars. I remember when uh, we passed TEFRA after the Reagan tax cuts in 81. We passed TEFRA in 82, which was kind of plugged some of the holes that the, the original bill had. And uh, I remember Bob Walker from Pennsylvania uh, standing on the floor and saying he could see $100 billion deficit, $100 billion a year for as far as the eye could see, $100 billion. Yeah. Or as I said, you know, when I was in the legislature, I learned the M word. And then when I came to Congress, initially I learned the B word. And now that I'm retired, I'm talking about the T word. Right. <laughs> that's, that's not progress at all. But it came down to, I think, the fact that um, you have a whole different breed of Republicans now than you had before. Um, and and trying to figure out how you get out of this is hard to do. Except if you look back at history, um, Bob Dole was the one that kind of uh, got the job done. It was so um, the, the numbers were so bad on Republicans that Bob Dole on Monday morning walked on the Senate floor as majority leader and said, "Enough is enough," and uh, he got the Senate to pass unanimously uh, their bill. And by that time, the House was just ready to do anything to uh, to catch on. Unfortunately, I don't think I don't see it now today. There are too many dug in. There's no dole around, frankly, to do that. Um, and so if there's a deal, I don't know who, A, makes the deal or what that deal looks like. But it came together over a, a number of years, partly because of the, well, obviously the, the most recent was the passage of, on a straight party line vote, essentially, Obamacare and the fact that it was coming onto the stage as, as we speak. Well, let, let, let's talk about that, because I, I do want to get into, you know, the, the, the fiscal aspect, especially having you here, Mr. Chairman, having having you here and getting into the fiscal aspect of the budget crisis that we're dealing with. But outside of that, we're basically looking at the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, holding hostage government operations today. Is that an accurate statement in your view? Well, I mean, it's, it's what it's come to. I mean, it's, 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 this whole thing is instead of, usually the fights over CR are always about money. Money, exactly. This is the first time in my memory that you have a, a, a different issue that you're dealing with. But the, uh, the fact is that the Obamacare doesn't, doesn't go well in the public. And the Republicans, a lot of some Republicans felt that this was now the only chance they could they could make a, a difference and try to turn it around. And but you know, my one of my political mentors told me early on in politics, don't don't pick a fight you don't have a chance to win. And I think they did. I mean, it was pretty clear that uh, nothing was going to happen in the Senate. And even if it did, by some miracle, obviously Obama would would veto it. So I think the premise all along on the part of Cruz and the, and the Senate uh, leaders, and to some extent the House, was uh, misplaced. Frankly, if I were in the Senate, I would have been, I would have crafted a way to keep put pressure on the Democrats who represent red states in the Senate, and and try to flip their votes. But 
Uh, they chose to basically start a civil war among Republicans, which, you know, the Democrats love, the media loves, but it turns out to be uh, a waste of uh, effort, I but, think. Congressman now, when we saw this in 94, it, it turned out to be just a huge hand grenade that blew up in the faces of the GOP on, on both sides of Congress. And, and yet we're seeing a, a certain factor of the GOP right now embracing the shutdown, saying, hey, it's not that bad. There's a Fox News site that's calling it a slim down, not a government shutdown. <laughs> I mean, is, have, have we lost all sanity in Fox has, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Memory. An awful lot of Republicans in the House don't remember that far back. They weren't here. It was kind of inside baseball anyway. Uh, I think they didn't understand the mechanisms that were at play on the whole thing. And so... They're 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 virginal. They don't know what uh, what they're they're <clears throat> what they are letting themselves in for. Congress, uh, I'm sorry, Bob Hines. Well, now I think that Chairman Oxley is right uh, about this. We've got this internal fight going on. I think the the thing that really bothered me the most was the way Senator Cruz and his friends, you know, took it upon themselves to just start this. This, we've got it. We've got to do. We've got to do Obamacare, no matter what. More important than anything else. And as you say, that's, we, we usually have been talking about money in the past. Now we're talking about policy issues on a, on a money fight. And it. Uh, and I think he did a great disservice. And I think it made it helped to cause problem in the House. And it just has left us with a mess. As if you're a Republican, you look at it, you say, you know, how do we get out of this hole? We've been digging it out for about three weeks now, and now we can't get out of it. Alan Moore. Yeah, I think it's too early to know what the long-term implications of this are. There, in, in a heartbeat, the Congress can pass a week-long CR, for example. We can kick the can a little bit down the road. I don't know if they'll do that. There, there are various things they can do. When we think back on what happened in 95, it was 95 and 96, um, we, we we forget a couple of key factors. A, one was in 95, about 800,000 people were, were, were shut down from, from working, uh, which is about the same number we've got now. That first phase lasted six days in 95. It was followed a few weeks later by a smaller shutdown that affected about 250,000 people for 21 days. And, and, and to Further complicated was that Speaker Gingrich made the unforgivable error in describing to somebody what was going on in saying that, yeah, it's true that he was still angry at the White House for getting him onto Air Force One through the back of the plane. This created a whole new narrative in the press and elsewhere that this is all personal pique that drove him, not principle. And we, we sort of forget some of that, some of that backstory. Today, I, I think that, that I don't always agree with Fox. I think it is a slim down. There are more government people working today than not working, just the military alone and plenty of other people. Having said that, it's a big deal, 800,000 people, very disruptive, 
very it, it looks makes us look stupid. How you get into a hole? How do you get out of it? And so on. But but uh, uh, a lot of things are still operating, still running in government. So um, hopefully, hopefully we can find a way in in the next day or two or three to at least get people back to work and and let cooler heads prevail here. But uh, Chairman Oxley, this has got to put somebody like, or in particular, Speaker Boehner in a very awkward position of, you're talking about somebody who's of the old school genre of, look, we can work these deals out, we don't have to get to these extremes, now having to fight roughly a 60-member caucus of very extreme right-wingers who are basically holding the GOP any deal-making hostage, if you would. And I'm a Republican saying that. How difficult a position is Speaker Boehner in right now? Well, it's, it's probably closer to 30 than it is uh, 60. Um, Boehner's got by far the largest support. I mean, Boehner has the vast majority of the members in the Republican side on his side. There's no question about it. And um, so in some cases, um, somebody, said, somebody said that the 30 are like the you know, the tail wagging the dog, and then one of the Democrats said, well, they are the dog. And right now, they are the damn dog. Um, and so I, I'm hoping that uh, Bader's calculation was that he would do some rope-a-dope with these guys, let them um, do their thing, to let them give them enough rope, and then when they find out the hard way that they don't have the votes and it's not going to happen, uh, Boehner can, can, I think, conveniently say, um, we gave you every chance, now we've got to govern, and uh, I'm going to put this bill on the floor uh, because it will get uh, at least a majority of the Democrats, and I suspect close to a majority of the Republicans, if not a, a true majority. So the pressure will be more on John in the next two or three days to do exactly that. I think from a, from his perspective, he has to see what happens. If the market goes south, and it, and it could very easily, if you remember when we did TARP, or the Congress did TARP, I was gone. They, they failed to pass it the first time around, and right. the markets went south in a heartbeat. The next very next day, they came back and passed it. So you could have an outside event um, that would trigger uh, the, uh, the opportunity for Boehner to say, like Bob Dole did, enough is enough. Um, I think that the threat to Boehner's speakership are overrated. Uh, I know most of the members still, and most of those guys uh, – would really fall on their sword for Boehner. And I don't think a lot of people realize the kind of support he's got, and as well as a lot of respect on the other side of the aisle. Carl Tubman. Uh, Luke Russert uh, evidently is either a distant relation or has a very close relationship with uh, John Boehner, the speaker. And he said, um, he said through uh, one of his uh, co-workers that when Boehner came out yesterday, or last early this morning for the press conference, that he really looked angry. And he had just come out of a conference. And uh, he thought that possibly Boehner had thrown something out to the conference, and they really hit back and hit back hard. So Boehner's in a, in a very, very, very tough spot, um, as, as we all know. And whether this, whether it's going to, it's going to take something like the market going south, to really hopefully bring these people together, if that. Alan Moore. Remember, we're 
we're looking at this CR, this 10-week long, 75-day proposition, which just buy, really just buys us some time. And within two weeks, we've got the debt limit which uh, extension, which runs out. We've got the longer-term CR, that the longer-term spending bills that would come due even under the bill currently being talked about, November 15th. There's a bunch of stuff happening, including phase two of sequestration. What we really need here is a way to pull all this stuff together, and I think there's a way. And it would require the, first of all, we'd have to buy a little time, four weeks, with a, with a, a short CR, pull the debt limit in and give the debt limit a little extra time so they're on in lockstep. Then convene the famous budget resolution conference that has not yet convened. There's a House bill, a Senate bill. If you can get a budget resolution, you can set up what's called the reconciliation process, which is a faster track way to do big stuff. Right. Now, if they could do big stuff between now and the end of the year, big stuff meaning taking on the entitlements, heading off phase two of sequestration, increasing the debt limit, and maybe some little baby token nothing on Obamacare, like extending the individual mandate by one more month to the end of April, you could conceivably, I mean, it's a long shot, but it's not crazy shot. But it comes to now, I mean, what Alan says is great, but that would take one thing that we're not seeing on the Hill right now, and that's political leadership or political courage. Is it really going to have to take somebody falling on their sword to get something as logical as what Alan's proposing moving in the on the Hill? Well, I've been saying for a couple, three weeks now that somebody needs to fall on their sword. Uh, Mike gives me some hope that uh, Boehner may not have to do that. Uh, but uh, it seems to me that, that somebody's got to step up. There isn't a Bob Dole, as was said. <clears throat> Somebody's got to play the Bob Dole, and there's probably nobody that's got as much armor on them as Bob Dole had when he when he did it. Uh, so, no, no, keep going, keep going. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> he was pointing at other people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. listening to no, me. No, go ahead now. Keep keep going. I know you're so sensitive, Al. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and now I forgot what I was saying. Oh, good. That leaves me some time to be scrapped. We've talked about the infight that's going on between the Republic within the Republican Party right now between the not so moderate, not so conservatives, and the Tea Party folks. My concern right now is that you know the American public is not just going to look at the Republican Party; they're going to look at the Democratic Party. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing too many emails and too many posts from people out in other places in the United States saying, "I'm talking." Cops on both of your houses that I'm not going to vote for anybody who put us into the middle of this mess. So I, at first, I should hope that our Democratic leadership is not saying, "Hey, we're free and clear. We didn't do this." Because by the way, folks, you did. And the Republicans shouldn't be saying, "We didn't do this." Because by the way, you did. So stop acting like five and nine-year-olds. Because I already have those two at home <laughs> and start doing something. Bob Hines. I was listening to Alan's um, uh, marvelous. Marvelous plan. Plan. It has about 80 moving parts, and I wonder if if it's possible. It would be wonderful if it is. I, if if they're smart enough to take one step at a time and get something done on 
the budget for a few weeks or whatever it takes. And because, you know, within 10 days, we've got the debt ceiling staring us right in the face, which is a hell of a lot of a bigger, more, more problem internationally with our finances uh, than, the, than the, the budget is. Right. And we can't even get the budget done. I don't know how we're going to get the, the debt ceiling done. It scares the hell out of me. Yeah, I mean, I mean, literally today we're talking about three major fiscal issues that are facing the nation right now. We're literally talking about a full-on government shutdown, which CNN is now reporting uh, after an interview with Steny Hoyer. Uh, the shutdown is indefinite. There's no discussion going on between the House and the Senate. Uh, we're also dealing with a budget crisis, which... We haven't seen a budget in literally the entire pre presidency of Barack Obama and a debt limit ceiling and, that is quickly and coming. And the president is sitting in his office saying, I ain't going to talk to anybody. Good point. Yeah, I don't wanna, I, oh, hold on, hold on. Do crap and then you. Well, well, first of all, I, I'm not going to blame this one on the president because I don't exactly see anybody in Congress doing their job right now. Neither do I. So, I mean, if those boys and girls can start getting to their jobs, maybe we can start having a conversation with the president. I mean, I saw two great protesters today, and I think we ought to talk about it. I said, why are we paying Congress right now? Why is it that we furloughed a lot of folks, but Congress is still getting a salary? Right. If you're getting a salary, do your job. Well, the ironic thing about that is is that yesterday, after they literally let government go into shutdown, well, yesterday was payday. Yeah. They got paid yesterday. Oh, they yeah, got a yeah. check. And they said, well, oh. Look, it's in my bank. I will shut that now. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Alan Moore. Well, I wanted to, to, to follow up on Bob's comment because I do believe that the president has been more absent than he should have been. A little bit of the Where's, Where's Waldo uh, children's book. He, he spoke to Speaker Boehner. This is in the public domain, September 20th, briefly. He did not speak to him for the next 10 days until yesterday. Now, when you're when you've got this crisis moving, when it's about your health bill that you care about more than 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 anything, and I get that, I understand that. I think that he, you know, that, that, that this is the main piece of his legacy, that and, and you know, avoiding a complete meltdown when he was taking office, um, which he gets some credit for. Um, it, he is he's he's not going to yield there. But but what you do when you are the president is. You engage the leadership of both parties at the highest levels. You don't call them down and, and read them the riot act. In the group of four, you have conversations one-on-one. -on -one. You bring them down. You talk one-on-one. -on -one. What can we do? What can we do? What can we do? And it, it's never been his way, and he didn't know these people when he came, and he had never been an executive as, and a governor, uh, as a governor, as, as some of our presidents have. And so he's, he started out with with some weaknesses that we don't often find with the president. He made up for it in a bunch of ways. But when the public is assessing blame, and you can look at the polls and so on, I think the Republicans do the worst. The Democrats in the Congress do the second worst, and the president does just about as bad. They all lose, as Al was saying last week, as we all recognize. There are no winners here. The Congress has got 10% approval rating, so what do they care if they drop to 8 or right. seven. No, they've actually so, already dropped to nine in the latest polls today, so we're in good shape. So that represents basically their staff and their immediate family. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's pretty much it. Well, actually, if we take their pay away, their families are gone. <laughs> actually, Chair Nancy, I've got to ask you the question. I mean, when we look at the, the 96 shutdown and we look at the shutdown today, it's not exactly deja vu all over again. 
we had a president who was able to communicate a message. It was based on fiscal issues, not on ideological demagoguery. Yet today we see the ideological demagoguery, and we have a president that can't sell a message on fiscal crisis, let alone his own medical program. I mean, this has got to be a wake-up call to the White House, at least. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, I, you know, presidential leadership is so important, and Al knows how that is. Um, Chris Matthews got a new book out now about Reagan and Tip O'Neill. Yes. And I saw a little bit of the interview this morning on Morning Joe. Um, it was interesting, and I was lucky enough to come in with the Reagan Revolution in 81, and uh, to see how they were able to, to O'Neill, because the Democrats had a big majority in, in 1981 when Reagan came in, and yet Reagan was able, and we, we faced some tough times back then, uh, with a, with a recession, a carryover from the Carter years, and yet Reagan passed his economic program by large bipartisan majorities, um, and then later did the tax reform with, with Dan Roskowski. So when Reagan faced a big Democrat House Republicans to take over by narrow majority in the Senate, but he made it work, and they kind of the theme of that book is how they made government work. Each had their own strong beliefs, but at the end of the day. We don't have that today. The president doesn't have those skills, frankly, and uh, and the Congress has become so polarized because of redistricting with a very few number of competitive districts that that the members are really their only concern uh, is oh, am I going to win next fall or in 2014, and if I can avoid a primary, I'm almost certainly going to win a general election. And so, in terms of, for example, the Republican side. And as long as they get reelected, they could they could give a who about the Republican Party in general, and they haven't even thought about 2016, and they probably will get reelected because that's the way the system is set up. Denise Crap. Well, all right, I'm going to go back to what Alan just said. When you start talking about having a president and having leadership skills, you can have as much leadership skills as you possibly can, but if you can't actually talk to somebody on the other side of the table because that person doesn't have the folks behind him which Boehner doesn't have, it doesn't matter how much you know, Obama does as far as talking and leading. If Boehner doesn't speak for the Republican Party, you cannot negotiate. And that's one of the things I really liked about Peter King when I was on the House Homeland Security Committee. When I worked with Benny Thompson, we always knew we could negotiate with Peter King because Peter King managed to hold his people together and we could negotiate. And that's what I'm really impressed with what Peter's doing right now is saying, enough. Right. And, when, and when you start seeing some of the moderates come out, that's when you know you've got a problem, and that's also why I think the moderates are going to split this week, and one, one, somebody's going down. It's either going to be the Tea Party, somebody's taking in the Tea Party, or somebody's taking in Vader, because you cannot continue to have this fight go on. If we continue to have this fight go on, we've got a, a government that's done indefinitely. But I, I, I think, you know, giving, giving the president a pass in some aspect in this, you know, it, it's not a matter of he doesn't have the entire caucus behind him. He still has, as the chairman pointed out, a good solid majority of the caucus behind him. And he doesn't have enough to overcome 200. But wait, wait a minute. But what we what we have not seen out of this president, which I believe we are begging for right now, is what we saw in difficult situations: Reagan with O'Neill, Clinton with Gingrich. We need that. Look. I'm going to talk to you. I will go camp out in front of the Speaker's office until you talk to me to get this done. 
and we have not seen that out of the president. Am I wrong in that, Bob Hines? No, and I I agree completely. I mean, I understand that there, you know, you can say that Boehner doesn't have all the troops, but he's got nobody on the other side downtown, like the president, who ought to be trying to solve this problem. He's got his whole legacy, and he has nothing to show for his presidency right now, the way it sits. He needs to get down there and make a deal. With, and if there's anybody who's prepared to make a deal, it's a guy like Boehner. He's always been a guy who wants to make a deal. He's, he, he and George Miller wrote the, the education bill, which, and they were, they were as far apart as, as Pelosi and, and Boehner. Well, but they worked out a deal. Kyle left behind was Kennedy. Yeah, Kennedy yeah, yeah, Kennedy. yeah. Exactly. The fact of the matter is we need the president to sit down and call, call John Duff and say, we got to settle this problem. Now, what, what can I do? Let's find a solution. There are things that the president could offer, something that would probably right now, given the way the Republicans feel, if they could get something, they'd probably say, hey, let's run with it. But there's no offer. Carl Tuman, I'm going to give you the last word for the segment. We'll continue on. Oh, no, no, no. Wait, 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 wait. Easy, easy. That's the first thing you've made strange noises on the air, Al. Relax. Carl Tuman, last, last point for the segment, and then we'll come back to you. There is, there is, there is, there uh, is, you know, the president, this was his baby. And all of a sudden. This he, being the, the Affordable, Affordable Care Act. Okay. And all of a sudden, these people come and they throw this in this bill. And he looks at that and says, darn it. He says, they are trying to, to take this bill and take it away from me. And I can see him being so angry that he just says, forget it. And he was also out doing other things for this country, which I'm sure we'll discuss and, and, later. And, and Carl, guess what? You're the President of the United States. You don't have that luxury. Exactly. Right? I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. The other thing you, is, the other thing is, somebody ought to call the President and tell them that there's a President's room in the Capitol. And it's been used by two Presidents extensively, Jefferson and Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson sat in that room for a for part of uh, uh, his presidency and got his things through. I want to bust through this break just for you, Congressman Al. Last word. I, I just am sitting here listening to you guys. You're bringing tears to my eyes about how the president won't cooperate with the Republicans. The Republicans have been stepping on his toes, spitting in his face, insulting him at every opportunity, failing to cooperate on the slightest thing, and he is, he's at fault? Give me a break. Well, guess what, Congressman? We're going to take that up when we come back from break. This is Backroom Politics. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelly's Back Room, Shelly's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings. Famous campfire wings. One pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, You've never had the Campfire Wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, 
You can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, you have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics. Capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio as we continue our breaking coverage of the government shutdown and just about every other fiscal crisis that Congress can deal with. Well, this gets fun now. Congressman Al, you left us at the last break by uh, just vilifying us as a collective for just going off on President or Obama. Vilif- or vilifying the president. Well, I don't think we vilify. I think, I think there's plenty of... of, of mistakes made to go around, but you guys were kind of laying out the case that... Well, 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 let me jump in on this. Alex, allow me. Allow, allow me, Bob. I would like to take moderator's privilege here. Number one, <laughs> I don't think we were vilifying the president. I think we're just calling out the president for... Look, we've said numerous times around this table he is the one individual in Washington that has the bully pulpit. He literally wants to burp on TV, and every 24-hour news cycle station will give him that TV spot. Why not use that bully pulpit to the best of his ability? This is an administration that hasn't been able to do that. Am I wrong in that, Congressman? Partially. Why? Because it's it's not that simple. And, and what I was saying was that leading into the actions that the White House has or has not taken was a an unbelievably rude, unsafe civil kind of attack coming from the the, the, the far right, the Tea Party, 
uh, and and others. And it's just not the, you you don't go slap somebody in the face and then say now sit down and talk to me and be nice. And I think the Republicans spent a great deal of time kicking him in the shins, punching him in the gut, and slapping him in the face. And now to hear you all come back and say he hasn't been willing to talk to us, I find ludicrous. Wow. Alan Moore, well, you want to take I'm, this one? Yeah, I hate to have to keep repeating myself, but it sounds Why like... Why has that stopped you it before? Sounds <laughs> like, it sounds like Al's not listening when we say the Republicans get most of the blame in the Congress. Two to one, by the way. The, the, the Democrats get plenty of blame in the Congress. We haven't even mentioned Harry Reid, for example, or Nancy Pelosi. And thirdly, the president has been absent in many ways. And I'm not saying that if he had been more present now and over the, the previous years, everything would have gone away. But he's got a duty here. He is the president. He is our leader. And there, you know, it's sort of as 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 people are saying, a pox on all of them, including the president. Not mostly the president, but including the president. There's there's a there's a duty that they all have, and they're all failing in. And we can only hope that somewhere in here, some folks will come together and say, how do we move forward, get government functioning again, maybe get a grand deal. And, and give and give everybody something to save face. Congressman Al, I, I heard that said the first time, and I have no problem with that. What I was objecting to was about a ten minutes straight bashing of the president because he hadn't done this, he hadn't done something else, and no reference to what the Republicans. No, we'll talk about that. the Republicans, but let's be honest, Congressman. That's that's his job. This country is searching for the president to show some sort of resemblance of leadership. I don't disagree with that. But you weren't listening to what I was saying. We what I was saying is like that you. if, if, you're, if you're... What, like me? No, no, just keep going. <laughs> but once you interrupt me, I can't get started again. <laughs> you're, you're learning that. Good. Mission accomplished. That's the tactic to remember. Mission accomplished. Bob Hines. You're using it very effectively. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to filibuster so that nobody else can <laughs> You and Ted Cruz well, have a lot in common. Yeah. Oh, no, wait a minute. Listen, time out. I hope that you don't really think that the that Congressman Al has Congress anything to do with any lap at all with Cruz. No, because, no, because Cruz. you know why? Congressman Al is not a circus clown. That's correct. There we go. So, Bob exactly, Hines, And call. I have already said that once before. And by the way, since we have Chairman Oxley here, the views and expressions of the moderator are not necessarily those of the people sitting around the table and not of that of Shelley's background. Yes. So, continue. Bob Hines. Go beyond what Alan was saying. It seems to me this. We have on Capitol Hill a situation where the leadership in both houses, both parties, have been unable to pull anything together except, you know, one guy lays down his his bill, sends it over. The other guy sends it back, changes it. They do it over and over again. You know, one of the, one of the net insanity is identified as people doing the same thing over and over. And they've been doing it. Now, it seems to me that maybe the only sane person around might be the president who would get everybody to say, look, let's just stop doing this kind of stuff. Let us sit down and talk. And he is the one person, the one person uh, who, is, who is in a position to say to everybody, look, 
you're acting like kids, let's get together and do something. The, the, the leader of the Senate can't do it. The leader of the House can't do it. You just can't. It's too many people yeah. running around all having a problem. You've got to get the president into it. Chairman Osley, um, in a big picture of sense, I think I thought about this quite a bit. You've got a center-right country that elected a liberal uh, and re-elected a liberal Democrat and probably the most liberal certainly in my lifetime, I would have to say. Right. And so you have this this juxtaposition where the country um, is kind of torn. They, they were elected and re-elected the Obama because they liked him, they liked his message, at least initially, um, and then he had the advantage of running against a campaign that was Less than less than good, so everything fell together. But now there's a lot of buyer's remorse. The public, clearly uh, by large numbers, uh, is not comfortable with Obamacare. So in some cases, they're trying to put a round hole in a square peg. And you compare you, and you and then you go back with uh, what has happened over the last couple of elections, where. And in my estimation, Republicans ought to have four more seats in the Senate right now. And the Senate ought to be 50-50 at the worst for Republicans. But the Tea Party chose to nominate candidates that couldn't win. Our good friend uh, from uh, Delaware, Mike Castle, right. could have walked into the Senate. Right. A great guy, two-term governor, popular guy, was on our committee, wonderful guy. Um, gets beat by some witch. Right, you know, or at least professed witch, or denied witch, or whatever. But we're going to talk. We're going to talk about the Tea Party here. But let's back I'm on a roll. Then we then we nominate some guy in Missouri who I served with in the House, who had no business being in the House, let alone the Senate, and he makes some stupid comment. He gets beat, and Claire McCaskill was roadkill until then, and then Harry Reid, for Lord's sake, out in Nevada, uh, his numbers were off the charts, and as to the good to bad. And yet, again, the Republicans chose, or the party chose to nominate a candidate that couldn't win. Um, and then in Indiana, we had a candidate who, and so there's four states right there that it should have been easy wins for Republicans. So I, I blame a lot of that on the Tea Party faction. I mean, you talked about Bennett in Utah. And exactly. But he was replaced by a Republican anyway. So. Right. But, so, but again, right. a fringe Republican. No, no, yeah, but, it, but, but his point is that we got Democrats instead of Republicans. Right, yeah. right, right. But and that cha- that would have changed the whole uh, equation without question. But I but I do want to I do want to bring up because we have been bashing a, a little bit on the president. You know, again, we are looking for some leadership coming out of 1600 Pennsylvania. But at the same time, I in my years of dealing with Washington have never seen a situation where we are seeing freshman and sophomore members basically flipping their chin at the speaker's office and the speaker. Yeah. It is unheard of. There is an almost uh, a, a sense of disdain, or I don't know what the right word is, that they show to the Speaker's office. You'd never see that under Denny Hastert. You would never see that under Tip O'Neill. You certainly wouldn't have seen it under Sam Rayburn. What has happened to... Uh, to the speaker's office to allow these freshmen to get I, that I had way. a conversation with a speaker not too long ago in my most one of my most frustrated moments. And I was thinking about it. I told him, I said, you know, he played football in, in high school for, for Cincinnati Moeller, one of the best high school teams in the country. Um, I said, you know, my sense is that these new guys um, either didn't play sports or didn't play a team sport. They played an individual sport. And B... 
they were never elected to city council or to school board or anything. They were in business or whatever they did, and they came to Washington with good intentions to change the world, and they got a lot of juice from their constituents to do it. They got here with the idea that they were going to oppose any kind of leadership, no matter what it was, and they have continued to do that. And frankly, they don't care. I talked to a high official in the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. I said, what are you guys doing on this thing? Oh, we're sending out letters, making phone calls. I said, do you think it makes a difference? He said, not to those 30 members. They don't care. Yeah. They don't care what the Chamber of Commerce thinks. Yeah. And, and they're, 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 so in some sense, you can't really reach them because they're kind of out on an island all by themselves. Well, and, and the one thing I want to add to that list is a lot of them, hardly any of them, veterans. Right. Yeah. Never. There was never a chain of Personal. command in their life. No. It was just always it was handed yeah. to them, and that's the type of modern mentality we're dealing with right now. Denise Crap. Right. But you brought them to the party. I, I mean, I, I can. I mean, I'm a Democrat. My mother's a Republican, and I can still remember about five years ago, my mom. We went home to North Carolina. My mom said, "I'm going to go to a Tea Party rally." So my two-year-old daughter then said, "Well, can I go to the Tea Party with Grandma?" And said, "Sweetie, this is not your Tea Party." You're not going to the Tea Party. <laughs> but I was amazed at the fact that my mother was kind of going in with these folks from the outside as a Democrat. I'm like, "Mom, what are you doing?" But she wasn't the only one. As a party, the Republicans brought them in. It's not as if, you know, they kind of snuck in. You welcomed them with open arms. And my question to the Republican Party is. When are you going to say, no, thank you, we don't want you in this party anymore, you need to leave, because that's the only way you're going to be able to govern. I, I disagree with that, but Bob Lyons, why don't you take that one? Just step back for one minute and think about it this way. When you have 360 seats in the House of Representatives that are hugely pushed one way or the other in their, in their structured lines, in other words, you don't have to worry about your general election because your party is so controlling the district that you're going to win if you're the nominee. These folks here, these, these Tea Party people, uh, are a, a, they are that result of that kind of a situation. The biggest problem that they are going to ever have is somebody to the right of them, and they're not going to let anybody get to the right, right of them. But the Democrats had that same problem, all fairness. That's right. You know, the McGovernites, well, remember? It's, it's right. exactly and, right. And, yeah. and parties have to learn a bitter lesson. Charlie Cook wrote about it just recently in Congress daily, um, that, that really that sets it up. So both parties have been through that, and you have to learn, you have to lose a few elections before you kind of get the program. But the difference I think that we see right now that they didn't have back in, in those days is we didn't have a 24-hour news cycle the way right. we did. We didn't have CNN, right. Fox, or MSNBC. Yeah, yeah. This is almost a, a battery pack to empower it is. the people like Rand Paul, Ted Cruz. And it's not unusual. Look up on TV and CNN and goes, Breaking news, and you got some guy I've never even heard of, you know, from uh, <laughs> from Mexico, Mexico or somewhere. Yeah. yeah, and he's giving a press conference, and they're all paying attention to the right. guy. I, I saw I saw Cruz standing up at a news conference with a bunch of people behind him, all men. I think they're all men, and I didn't know any of them. I haven't been out of Congress that long. <laughs> I know any of these guys. I couldn't have picked them out of a lineup. Yeah, true. It's and unbelievable. And, and Alan Moore. Yeah, I was re reflecting on how we got into this mess and what prompted <coughs> the Tea Party. Remember, it was it was world and domestic events in 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, and this enormous frustration in America about loss of wealth loss of jobs and fear for the future. So the, it, it, it was an environment that set up 
for extreme political views, and we got a whole bunch of new guys. And I'm reminded about 1980 when, after an enormous amount of frustration with what were the perceived failings of the Jimmy Carter presidency, both as a world leader and also in, in, in the domestic uh, economic environment, there was a, a tidal wave of Republicans who got elected. Nobody really predicted it. And six years later, there was a bunch of new senators uh, who came in, 17 new senators, most of them Republicans. Um, actually, wrong number, but a, a, bunch of new, right. a bunch of new Republicans. Six years later, a number of them lost, prompting one, one person to say, you know, if we'd known in 1980 that we could have won those races we could have, we would have had better candidates. Yeah. We could have gotten a re-elected. We thought they were throwaways. Yeah. Jeremy Stanton. Yeah. There you go. Wow. Oh, there's oh, the guy who's the guy from Nevada, Chick Hack. Oh, right. oh, good lord. <laughs> he talked about the nuclear suppository. Yeah. Yeah, You're killing me. Which, is, which yeah. is not something you ever want to try. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Carl Tubin. Well, first of all, thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Alan, because you told you, you said what I was going to say, but I I, I also want to add that that um, in my mind uh, this secret Ted Cruz and Senator Lee and the Tea Party have done more harm to the Republican brand than anyone ever thought they could do, and they might have 30 people who have who are in gerrymandered districts that might be there, but there are other Republicans who could suffer, even if they had voted uh, with the uh, uh, people to, to, to do these things or, or, or voted against it, they could be in trouble. And, and, and I, I also, the big question is, well, what Democrats will fall? Well, and, and how much that's going to reflect on us, and that's going to depend a lot on whether the president, the vice president, the former president, and former secretary of state are willing to get out on the campaign trail in 2014 and, and uh, uh, run hard. But it, it, it strikes hard. me, though, Carl, I, you know, I want to agree with you on Ted Cruz. I never thought I'd see the day. I'm actually agreeing with you oh on this. Carl. <laughs> Carl, I agree with you. I think Ted, I think Ted Cruz. Yeah, yeah, Ted Cruz is actually doing more harm than good to our party. I absolutely agree with that. What I what I what I will say on the Democratic side though is it is amazing to me that every time the president has to get a message out about anything, he goes running back he goes running back to the Clinton House. The House of Clinton. It, I mean literally the Clint I think it was either Alan or, or Al that said uh, Bill Clinton is now the secretary of explaining stuff to America. It, it, that baffles me. That absolutely baffles me, and that's not what we expect out of a president. You know, when you have when you have someone that has been president, has been there, has been through all this, and everyone's saying, you know, how uh, President Obama wasn't, you know, trained to be the president as Clinton was was with his governorship and everything else. You go to somebody who, who who can help you, and that's what's happened. But it's a security blanket. It, it's a line of security blanket. I, I want to go back to Ted Cruz for a moment because I, I hold him and the Tea Party people in very different measure. I think the Tea Party people are uh, probably, by and large, pretty good people. Uh, 
they think of themselves as good Americans. I think they're terribly misled. I think they're misleading themselves, and I think they're wrong, and I think they're damaging things, but I don't think they're bad people. Ted Cruz shows me all of the symptoms of Joe McCarthy. I think we need to not take him lightly and keep an eye on him. Alan Moore. Um, I actually, uh, unfortunately, agree with Alan. Uh, <laughs> this I, is bizarre. I, I say I say that with some sadness. I think I, I think about about Cruz, not about agreeing with that. Okay, that happens every now and then. Um, but the, the the difference between uh, between Cruz and McCarthy is Cruz works on television and McCarthy never did. Once we got a look at Joe McCarthy, we didn't like him. America thought, who is this disheveled, sort of nasty, ugly person? He came over better in print or even in radio than on television. Worse than Richard Nixon. And 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 he (laughs) you know sort of planted the seeds of his own demise, not only by overreaching and overdoing, but by how he looked. Cruz, who actually could be made up to look like Joe McCarthy. He's <laughs> well-dressed, well-spoken, tuned to the media, and very clever. I think, I think that Cruz has not destroyed himself or destroyed his own brand. I think, in a way, this is sort of scary, he's strengthened his own brand, but, but I think he's, in some ways, potentially more dangerous than McCarthy because he suits the modern world of media, and and uh, I, I, he's going to be interesting to watch. I'm guessing that he's overstepped or will or will continue to. Uh, so it's not that I'm afraid of him taking over the country, but uh, but he's but, uh, he's a he's a smooth and but polished. But Alan, Alan, real quickly though, I want to ask uh, the chairman, Mr. Chairman, at some point. We've got to get, and we have, and nobody's really talked about this as being a, an influencer, if you will, but when we see people like Ted Cruz really coming up and hindering the ability of the party to truly expand and embrace, we're looking towards the RNC, and we're not seeing them getting involved. You know, we look at the old chairman, like a Haley Barber. People like Ted Cruz and the way that some of these freshmen and sophomores are treating the speaker would never happen under a, a uh, Haley Barber regime at the RNC. Does the party have some sort of responsibility of saying... No, hey, I, think, I disagree on that. I, I think that uh, the way that things are set up now, um, Cruz has access to outside money that never was the case before, which makes him basically a, a free agent. He's, um, he doesn't have to rely on the RNC. He doesn't have to rely on the Senate campaign. Does that campaign. make him more powerful Absolutely. or the party less weak or both? Both, both. Okay. It clearly, and I think, frankly, it was the it was the uh, McCain-Feingold bill that really set this up. They essentially treated groups um, like polit- political parties and political parties like outside groups. And with that change, you've had this enormous change in in the power structure where where uh, Ted Cruz can go out. I got a call from the Tea Party last night, the Tea Party patron. Mm-hmm. I had to. I had a good sense not to answer the damn phone. Thank, <laughs> thank God for, for, for caller ID. All right. I was so I was so I was so I was almost ready to pick up the phone and tell him, but I did. Yeah. 
Um, and that's the last time I did it since Michelle Bachman called. You know? <laughs> so, but I did on that one. I, I couldn't resist calling. I picked up the phone take. and his poor kid on the phone, and I just gave him unsure to hell. And I said, why don't you tell your boss to, to, to support Boehner for a change? So, oh, no. Wow. So that's the last time I ever heard and of Apparently the 19-year-old who was making the phone call didn't recognize the name, Mike Ogden. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Who but, would? But yeah, who would? Hell yeah. So, no, I think that's, uh, that's part of it. But, but I think these outside groups have the ability to raise a lot of money. Um, and can focus in on those kind of races. That's what scares, like, Republicans in a primary. you got, I know Republican senators scared to death looking over their shoulders because if Cruz or somebody says, I want to get him, all of a sudden you've got mobilization. Yeah. They're going to go after uh, Mike Simpson out in Idaho. Right. I mean, when Mike Simpson isn't conservative enough, when John Boehner is not conservative enough, we, the party has got real problems. Bill Schuster, the son of yeah. Bud Schuster, has a Tea Party yeah. primary. Yeah. You're kidding me. I mean, this is bizarre. Congressman Al, do you see the Democrats truly getting together and capitalizing on the opportunity that they have in in the weakness that's being displayed by the GOP right now? Uh, yes, I, I think I think as as was pointed out, we've gone through this, and there are enough of us around who remember it who don't want to go through it again. That, in another 20 years, they will have forgotten it, and then the Democrats' term in the barrel will come around again. But uh, the, the, uh, I think I think the Democrats are, are ready to uh, take advantage, and I think that uh, the big question is, will they overdo it, overplay their hand, uh, get a little silly about it? They're raising big money, the Democrats. I saw the figures this morning. They've raised more money in the last 10 days than they've ever raised in any period in the history of the campaigns. So that tells me something. First of all, they're smart at going out and doing it, but they're also getting a big response from their this is, Well, Mr. Chairman, let me ask you this. Does this situation and the need for moderation, does this help a Chris Christie effort in 16? Um, no, I don't think so. Really? No, I think the, I think the conservatives are still on the ascendancy, and uh, by the time Chris Christie... Uh, get serious. Uh, he's going to be so beat up, uh, and they're going to have uh, they're going to have him for lunch. And wow. uh, and I, I, he won't have the resources to uh, uh, to take him on. Interesting. Interesting. Carl, too. Just to follow up on the, on the chairman's remarks, every other email that I got on my BlackBerry last night was either from the DNC, the DCCC, or the DSCC. I mean, it was amazing. And uh, all saying, you know, uh, we're under attack, we're under siege, deadline is midnight, you've got to contribute, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Bob Hines, last word. Yeah, I think that Ted Cruz is maybe the most dangerous Republican around because he isn't a really Republican. He's, he, could, he could fundamentally destroy the Republican Party. Well, well, we'll talk about that. But when we come back, though, I do want to talk about the numbers and the budget issue surrounding this. And... How taxing is Obamacare? I can't have the former chairman of financial services be here and not tap into that experience. So it's happy hour. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. This is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Happy hour on Backroom Politics is sponsored by Shelley's Backroom. 
1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., America's premier cigar tavern. Stay with us as the roundtable continues after we order our drinks, order our cigars, and get ready for the second hour of Backroom Politics. Stay with us. We'll be back in two minutes. here of the government shutdown. It is shutdown day here in Washington, and in the streets are bare, no people, tumbleweeds down Pennsylvania <laughs> Avenue. <laughs> apparently it's the ghost town here in D.C. Uh, nobody's considered essential anymore. It's just a, a bizarre situation. The traffic's a lot better, though. The traffic's fantastic, yeah. 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 D.C. to Fairfax in 20 yeah. minutes. You never <laughs> see that at this time of day. It's an ill wind that blows nobody right. good. Yeah. To, to show you how essential we are, We've got uh, we got the former chairman of financial services, Mike Oxley, here joining us. Thank you very much for hey, joining us. It's been fun. This is oh, this is fantastic, uh, Mr. Chairman. I I want to talk a little bit about the money behind the budget and and the Affordable Care Act. Uh, number one, we're hearing that you know we've got to defund uh, Obamacare. We've got to defund all uh, parts of Obamacare. Yet when we look at it. There's a lot of Republicans that fail to realize, hey, wait a minute, this is stuff that we bought into back when Nixon and Kennedy put their deal together. When Bob Dole was working 
in the Senate to try and get some sort of comprehensive health care programs going. Why now is this such a sore subject for the GOP financially? Well, it's, it's, it's a sore subject for just more of the GOP. I mean, if you look at the polls, mm-hmm. and, and most people really don't even know how many and how varied the taxes are in this thing. They will eventually find out, and it's just pretty, um, a pretty big uh, swath of taxes that are going to affect virtually everybody. Um, so that's part of it. And I think the more that debt is well known, the less understood. I think they had a whole different concept back then of what what um, healthcare was about. Um, but I think one of the problems that Republicans have had is instead of just talking about repeal, we've not really come up with a comprehensive approach uh, to um, to healthcare. Uh, that's saleable. And so the Democrats, I think, can rightly say to the Republicans, well, you know, if you want to repeal Obamacare, what do you want to replace it with? Because clearly there's problems in the healthcare field. And, um, but I think the Obamacare was one of those things that was kind of um, put together with a lot of taxes to get enough revenue uh, and also the individual mandate, which a lot of people just intuitively don't like. They don't like the fact that government's making them do this, or if they do it, they'll do it, they'll they'll be fine. But the only way they could put this whole package together to cover as many people as they did and provide the subsidies that they did was to raise these these taxes. And that's why ultimately every Republican in the House and the Senate voted, voted against it. Okay. Go ahead, Alan Moore. I, I, he, he, the, the chairman just touched on a very important subject. The Republicans all voted against it. Every time in the history of this country that I'm aware of, probably somebody can come up with an example where it's not the case, but just about everything big that this government has ever done legislatively has had some decent measure of bipartisanship. People say, oh, Republicans always hated Medicare. Not all Republicans. A majority of Republicans voted for Medicare. A majority of Republicans voted for Social Security. It was a principal it's, point in President Nixon's uh, State of the Union address. You know in something? 72. What Nixon did in '72 has zero relevance to today's members to, to to the Congress. But but what was missing in Obamacare was two things. One, I think, a false priority at a time that the economy was still in the toilet. And two, a decision pretty early on. Some people say, oh, we didn't have the decision. There weren't any Republicans. There were Republicans. There was a, there was a bipartisan group in the, in the Senate who were working on a bipartisan package. It didn't lead to anything. They tossed it aside. They passed a major piece of legislation that affected everybody in the country with zero Republican support. And when you have no support and it's confusing and unpopular it's confusing because it's really complicated, and it's vulnerable to being caricatured in other ways and, and, and so on. It, is, it should be no surprise that the Republicans continue to vote against it. Now, you can vote against it and let it happen, or you can throw your body in front of it, right. which is what we're seeing, at least for the moment, right now. But look, I, I want to ask the chairman real quickly, though. When we look at Affordable, Hair, Affordable Care Act aside, Looking at the fact that we still have not seen a budget in almost six years, 
where is the disconnect happening as far as coming together and getting a a proper budget in line to move forward instead of this continual band-aid of continuing resolutions going down the pike? Well, in some respect, you know, the Budget Act's been around since 74. And um, I think that part of it is just the, uh, the, the Budget Act is not very effective in today's world, frankly. And um, it probably ought to be reformed or gotten rid of and start all over again. I mean, I think it was a good idea at the time, but um, and in, in some ways, having the reconciliation process at the end of it, so, um, you can effectuate change a lot quicker, but it's becoming more and more difficult to even pass budgets. Over the last several years, the House has passed their budget. Paul Ryan um, has done an excellent job. John Casey before him, who's now governor of Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that, that, that was showing, I think the Senate, to a large extent, just simply uh, didn't have the ability to uh, to do it and have not done it until recently. And then um, I think they, they make a good point that now that the Senate's passed the budget, uh, the House doesn't want to go to conference. I think that's a mistake politically on the Republican side because they've been all along saying the Senate hadn't passed a budget in six years. They finally passed one, and then they decided not to go to conference, and so we're in this Never, never land. No, we, we, I've asked this question, and we've all speculated and had our own thoughts and comments on this, but I'd like to get your expertise on this. When it comes to sequestration, was sequestration almost too effective, or did it not do enough? Well, that's the interesting thing about this whole sequestration. The budget, or the, 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 the CR, basically contains the sequestration numbers. So, in many ways, the Democrats are going to have to swallow hard at the lower number uh, because they, the Republicans wanted to get it under a trillion dollars. And Hal Rogers even wanted it higher, but uh, more conservative elements uh, prevailed, and so the sequestration remains and, and continues uh, under that lower number. So, so ironically, instead of Republicans taking credit for it and the lower spending, they're saying it's not enough, and yet they're going to ask the Democrats to vote for the, for the CR that is far lower in the, in the final number than anyone would want, or most of them would want. So what I think is going to happen ultimately, uh, when they finally pass the CR, you're going to see the far left vote against it, the far right almost certainly vote against it, and the hope is that the center among the Democrats and Republicans will, will carry the day. Um, but it doesn't say that um, the, the system is working, because it really, it really has broken down dramatically, and um, somebody's got to really take the bull by the horn and say, well, we got to face facts that this budget system is not working and, and, and work to uh, change it. I will say this, though. You know, out of the uh, shutdown uh, in, uh, in 95 and 6 uh, came a new understanding about how important it was for the parties to work together and for uh, the goal to be a balanced budget. We had four years of balance, but actually surpluses, to the extent that Alan Greenspan announced that they were no longer going to have the 30-year bond. That was unbelievable. Nobody could have ever thought that. The amount of money coming into the Treasury um, with, the, uh, with the, the cuts in capital gains was enormous. As a matter of fact, the largest amount of revenue coming in during that period of time was the capital gains uh, tax. But the reason was, and to some extent, everybody was blind to this, it was because you had the tech bubble. Right. And so you had all these all of these dot com companies coming out of nowhere, you know, pets dot com and God knows what else. And these and some of these 
some of these tech uh, companies that were coming out, these dot-com companies were coming out, they were high, more highly capitalized than General Electric. Right. And they hadn't, they hadn't made any money. <laughs> it was this total, total madness. It was total madness. And nobody, you know, nobody cared because everybody's making money. Everybody's in the stock market. The stock market's going crazy. The government's making money. We had balanced budgets. My predecessor used to say, Nobody shoots the bartender when the drinks are on the house. <laughs> I, I mean, it was just unbelievable. That's a great quote. I love that. Yeah. We may have to use that in your back so true. Policy. It is so true. But, Mr. Chairman, though, you know, when we look at the recovery, when we look at the financial eggshells that we're walking on right now, we hear conflicting reports. We hear that we're in recovery, but we see jobs numbers fluctuate up and down. Housing starts up and down. We see that, you know, we've got to be very cautious about the... Uh, about the state of our economy, yet we see Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, all the big banks with making record profits, giving out record bonuses again. It almost seems deja vu all over again. It, what I mean, how stable is our economy, and are we still in a recovery, and how fragile? You know, I, I've, I've talked about this for a long time. I think the with, starting with Enron and WorldCom at the beginning of the decade. And then the Great Recession. The catalyst of your Sorbanes-Oxley rule. And then what, what happened in, it was brought about Dodd-Frank, mm -hmm. was the, the loss of faith in the capital markets by the individual investor. And it's, it's affected us uh, much more than I think a lot of people think. When I came to Congress in 1981, two-thirds of our savings in America were in bank deposits. Um, about 20, 25 years later, it had reversed. Two thirds are now in equity. We're in equities, and a third in bank deposits. And 54% of American households uh, in 2002 uh, were in the stock market. 54%. Uh, so we had developed the largest investor class in the history of the world. And these were people working on the line, building tires in my hometown and Cooper Tire and Rubber Company. Uh, they were saving for their retirement or maybe putting their first their kids be the first generation in college um, an amazing thing and then you had Enron and all the BAP and WorldCom and this loss of, of investor confidence we lost eight trillion dollars in market cap eight trillion dollars because of the miscreants and the WorldCom and, and Enron and the, and the like and then later because of what happened in Wall Street and the I think that just totally unregulated over-the-counter derivatives market, uh, which was opaque and unregulated, they lost $11 trillion. So between them, it's almost $20 trillion, and that was mostly investors that lost that money in the market. And so how do you get the individual investor, how do you get him back in that market? And you talk to people at the investors at ICI, you know, the, 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 the people that really kind of look at these, these funds and, and say, this is the chance for the average guy to invest. They're taking their money out, but so you don't have any you don't have any real capital base that we had before because you have so many people getting out of the market. But Chairman, honestly, you know when we see all that being considered, we see the banks making these profits, and yet we we need the banks to loan money okay. in order for our economy to grow. Exactly. They're hoarding in an unlimited way, the cash that's supposed to go out and build this economy. As a former chairman of financial services, is there anything that you foresee is going to make them turn the spigot back on? Well, at the end of the day, where you've got zero, essentially zero interest rates, 
I mean, it, it really is it, it's not in anybody's best interest, the banks, to do that. Plus, you've got the, the, the real problem. Like, look at J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan is, gonna, is now talking about, at the very least, paying an $11 billion fine to the SEC, to the CFTC, to everybody, the Justice Department, everybody else. That would be the largest fine in the history of mankind. I represented a company that settled for $800 million. And at that time, I was the largest. That was only just a few years ago. This is going to be off the charts. They, they violated virtually every banking uh, law. They violated Sarbanes-Oxley. They violated, they, 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 it was just a, and yet, and Jamie Dimon, everybody still thinks, you know, he walks on water. Well, you know, they didn't do the basic things in terms of internal controls, and they, they ruined the, the entire economy. And not just J.P. Morgan, but by essentially loaning money um, to people that have no business buying a house. And so you had this this idea that, hey, um, housing prices are going to continue to rise, and we're going to continue to securitize these mortgages, and don't worry, worry about the fact that this guy's you know, making $20,000 a year and he's buying an $800,000 house. Not to worry. He never made any payments. And so it's become that. Somebody asked me to describe this, by the way. Right. I was, I was in Cleveland, our law firm's office, and I was speaking at a group, and I said, they said, how can you describe what happened in the Great Recession? I said, think about this in a shorthand. Guy in Cleveland misses his mortgage, and Iceland goes down the tube. Because Iceland's <laughs> buying all this crap, right? That's really what happened. But, but, Mr. Chairman, when we hear that, though, there's also got to be a certain personal responsibility that says, I'm making $30,000. I can't afford that $1.2 million townhouse. Oh, yeah, good luck with that. Up. When they're shoveling money at you, what are you going to say? But still, there's got to be some personal responsibility. Well, I guess. But, but I mean, just, well, there are a lot of personal bankruptcies that grew out of this. Right. I mean, those guys end up with well, nothing. we created a whole cottage but, industry. Yeah, no, absolutely. But it was it was just off the charts. I mean, it was some of the horror stories. If you've read, you've got to read, like, the, the big short. Uh, or too big, too big to fail. fail. To really kind of get a feeling about how outrageous this was. I, I used to have people from uh, from the banks come in and say, uh, "Well, you know, this Brooksley Bourne or CFTC talking about uh, regulating and having more transparency in the over-the-counter derivatives market. This will just drive it overseas." And Greenspan said that. Um, the Treasury said that. Brooksley Bourne, they basically ran around a town. Arthur Levitt, who was supposed to be the big protector of the investor, uh, he basically helped run her out of town, and she was right. And well, you so, know, we, so you had all so you had all this crash, and we're still living through that. We're we're trying to figure out how we can how we can survive. It's a miracle in the, you know, the American system that they could revive twenty trillion dollars in losses in a, in an eight year period and still muddle through. But let me ask you this question. We, we talked about the Tea Party earlier, and one of the one of the ideas of the Tea Party is no more bailouts, no more tarps. Uh, you know, there's no more too big to fail. Looking back at it, Tank Paulson was he a hero or was he wrong? He was he was he was neither wrong nor right, but he had to do what he had to do. And you had you were looking into the abyss, and Hank Paulson, I think, was right in saying we have to do this because we don't know. It's easy to second guess, but we don't know at this point what what's going to happen uh, if we can't meet our obligations. It's too big to fail reality. It is right now, and I think I think it's uh, John Frank tried to address that, and I think there's I'm not sure that they did in an effective way. For example, 
J.P. Morgan's in big trouble. Right. They're going to pay eleven plus billion dollars. But that's that's about half but what they make they're in a quarter. Same time they're paying Jamie Dimon yeah. a billion dollars. It's about half what they make right. in a quarter. Don't they have to also pay something in Europe? Yeah. I thought there was an eight eight million or billion dollar. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's become a cost of doing business, unfortunately. Right. Alan well, Moore. I'm, reflect, I'm thinking about this twenty trillion dollars that the economy lost. But the, and, the market lost. And, right. That, that, that the market lost, and and who is that? And it's the, it, it, to a significant degree, the fifty-two percent formally of Americans who had some piece in the market. They either owned shares of stock in their employer or in some other company. They owned it through a pension plan. 401k. And when everybody took a bath in 2007 and 8, all these people who had been saving for years, proud of the fact that they had a that they had a 401k or a pension, a pension set of promises that looked pretty strong and pretty good and they're approaching uh, uh, retirement, suddenly see their hopes and dreams and plans and the promises made to them go up in smoke, we should not be surprised that's something that we call the Tea Party that's not one party, it's multi, It's different everywhere it is, would emerge and evolve and that people would still be angry as hell because they thought they played by the rules, some of them are in bankruptcy, some lost their homes, most of them lost their savings and have had to totally readjust their plans for retirement in this aging economy. That's the roots of the team. Chairman Oxley? Absolutely. That's absolutely right. Alan captured much better than I could have. Um, but that, that, is, that is the case, and it's still this hangover uh, that people who lost their life savings, lost their jobs. We, we saw it very clearly in Enron, where Enron employees not only lost their job, but lost their life savings just like that. And the, the, the shock effect it had on, on our overall markets. And you had the same kind of thing here. And Alan is absolutely right. And you, that is the core problem we've got. I've, I've spoken in Europe two or three times, and every time I got attacked as an American by causing this worldwide thing, right. you know, like it was my fault. Yeah. Individual. Single-handedly, it's yeah, your single fault that yeah. Japan yeah. banks are defaulted. Yeah, I wish I was that right. But, but, <laughs> it, but, it, but it, you know, it, it was like the American thing. Mean, we have some degree of fault here, no question about it. And and Al's right, it, it, the Tea Party people... And Alan, they they are they're they're frustrated because what happened to the American dream? What happened to the idea of saving and sacrificing, you know, for the next generation? When I can when when I nothing that was my fault, all of a sudden it just disappeared. Right. And that's just a terrible, terrible situation. Denise Krupp, you had a question. Mr. Chairman, can I ask you a question? When you start talking about fault, there's been some very interesting movements going on up in New York where. Um, there have been judges that have uh, that have received uh, settlement offers that you know the Department of Justice has had with certain other financial institutions, and the judges have said, "No, we're not going to take it because we want somebody to be held personally liable." So you can have the company, but you can also have an individual, a CEO, being held personally liable. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, should we be forcing more people, not in, the, in addition to the companies themselves, like J.P. Morgan, are about to pay 11 billion dollars? Should we be forcing the CEOs of these companies, the CFOs, and others to say? You are personally liable, and we will hold you personally liable in court. Well, I think that that was one judge actually that, that, that did that. Uh, but I think whether it's a trend or not, I don't know. Um, but I do think that uh, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley was passed to a you know, probably it was about accounting fraud, and it was about um, it wasn't about uh, Bernie Madoff, or it wasn't about you know the banks making things risk. I think a lot of people think that. 
It was. It wasn't. It wasn't really. It was about accounting fraud, and it was about the accounting system and how. And we set up the public county public county oversight board. Um, but but it was um, it was not. You know, it was really meant to try to avoid that in the future. But that was for publicly traded companies. You know, it wasn't for uh, a, a Ponzi scheme like uh, Bernie Madoff or Alan Alan Stanford. And so. Um, that's what Dodd Frank was, you know, tried to try to deal with. I think Dodd Frank went for probably farther than it should have, but the idea was to provide more transparency and accountability into the process. For example, over-the-counter derivatives—that's a multi-trillion-dollar worldwide market, multi-trillion-dollar—and and, and um, Dodd Frank tried to uh, tried to deal with that in terms of, of making the uh, clearinghouses available because. Part of the problem when the when the housing prices stalled and went down, everything froze up. Nobody knew uh, how much AIG was owed or who owed did what. Everybody was frozen. There was no transparency whatsoever. And so the idea behind Dodd Frank, among others, was to try to get this out into either on exchanges or or to to give more transparency so you can you deal with these instruments like they would stocks. So when you trade a stock. Where you buy a stock or sell a stock, you know exactly what what the quote is on the New York Stock Exchange or Nasdaq. So well, that's that's part of the. I, Mr. Chair, I, I've got to ask a hardball question here, no. and apologize for this, but uh, Finra is Finra self-regulation, or does it really have teeth? Well, Finra is self-regulation on the below SEC. Right. So you've got you've got two layers. You've got the SEC Finra at the at the basic level, and you got the SEC overlooking things. So that's the only way, frankly, you can do a reasonable marketplace and have a have a good regulatory structure. But a lot of a lot of people that looked at FINRA as saying, okay, this is something that's really going to protect the American people from having this too big to fail or this overpayment or just it's the industry basically being self-governing and self-correcting a little bit. At the same time, it just didn't look like it had the strength that a lot of people were hoping it did. Was well, that a misconception? I think so. I think that now the SEC is a different matter. I think the SEC, really, yeah, okay, SEC, why? Well, because the SEC is the ultimate regulator of the capital markets, mm-hmm. and you have a structure there where the president appoints the commissioners and the chairman, and and so that's well, well, regarding the old days when Congress had. Had jurisdiction over those issues. Yeah. Alan and I would talk about those, and then I stole them and took them over to financial services. <laughs> but that's a whole other story. And Dick will never forgive me. Will As a matter of fact, I've got a new uh, middle name. We'll talk about that offline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that offline, Mr. Chairman. Uh, but uh, it's like Bucky Dan, I've got a new middle exactly. name. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, but that 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 really I think showed how uh, important the SEC is. And yeah, they blew it. They blew with Bernie Madoff, and I think Mary Jo White, uh, who came from a prosecutorial background, and the, the first case she had, you know, no longer going to have we need her admit or deny, you know, baloney. Right. And so, so uh, for the first time ever, J.P. Morgan said, "Yeah, we violated securities laws. That's huge. Yeah, that is huge. And that will start, I think, hopefully the." But a lot of people were looking at FINRA to be the first layer, saying, "Look, we don't have to worry about that because FINRA's right there. Yeah, they these are the people who know the inside track. Why hasn't it gotten the traction well, or the visibility that it? Yeah, well, first of all, because they're an SRO, 
they're, they're a self-regulatory organization, and they're, um, they don't have the powers, the overall power of the SEC. And they, they basically are the first line of defense uh, in that. And clearly, they, they missed, like, the so main... So financial securities equivalent of TSA screeners? Yeah, to some extent, yeah. Okay. But you got the SEC to, you know... To back up yeah, with the guns yeah, and the enforcement. Yeah. And I think that Dodd-Frank, to some extent, will strengthen that. But, uh, but it came down to a lot of people taking excessive risk, nothing illegal, but, but the idea that, that um, they could take risk with what we call OPM. Right, other people's money. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. and it is, it's pretty easy to do that, you know. And so you got the guys like the London Whale, and, he, and they were just off on a can uh -huh, run. On five, and, et cetera. Yeah, right. just, just totally irresponsible. Right. And so and ultimately they'll, they'll pay the price on that. But at the same time, the average investor took it in the shorts, and they're not, you know, they're not very enthusiastic about getting back in that market because they see it's, they think, and I think they're to some extent they're right that it's an insider game. You know, every time you pick up the Wall Street Journal, insider trading, backdating of stock options, um, taking excessive risk with their money, and, and a lot of these people are saying, "I've had it. I just I can't handle this." Back anymore. in the mattress it goes. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that hurts our economy dramatically. It does. All right, we got to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to finish up this discussion. We're going to talk about a little bit about the budget, about where we go from here, and how long will this shutdown go? This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or... Where there's something elaborate, like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches, they've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or, heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
one more time. One more once. Here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Hey, special thanks to Chairman Mike Oxley, uh, former chairman of financial services, long, long time member of Congress, and, and just one of the great guys there in, on the Hill. Can I say something? Yeah, absolutely. About bipartisanship. He was my ranking Republican when I was chairman of the. Were you talking to Can I have your lighter? Yes. <laughs> and uh, we got. A rewrite of the Superfund, which was very complex, very controversial, out of the uh, Energy and Commerce Committee 42 zip. Wow. That comes not from sticking your thumb in the other guy's eye, but working out compromises. And he was great to work with. Uh, he had a heck of a time convincing some Republicans to make some of the compromises. As did I with some of the Democrats on others. No kidding. Uh, but uh, but wasn't that the way it used to work? That's the way it used to work. Exactly. And he he was he was a great guy to work with. And I well, just you know, to point that out. you know what? I, I want to talk a little bit about that because you know the, the the one thing that I noticed here in seeing you know Chairman Oxley, Congressman Al, well, I, I you know what I I have been remiss. Congressman Al, I owe you an apology. Well, I I well. We've always commonly referred to you as Congressman Al. It's kind of your name to plume here at Backroom Politics. Yeah. I should refer to you, as I do with Mike Oxley, uh, as Mr. Chairman. You were chairman of a subcommittee. And I should refer to you as Mr. Chairman, as I did with Mike Oxley, and I apologize for that. Don't. don't. He was he was a full bull chairman, and uh, and I'm... Oh, you were, you were double able? I, I, I was or less than that. I... <laughs> I, 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 I Perfectly satisfied with the congressman, and if you don't call me that, I won't say. Now you're always going to be congressman Al to us. Uh, hey, uh, but the, the one thing I noticed in in the interaction between uh, Chairman Oxley and Congressman Al and Bob and Alan to an extent, Alan, you know, I, I would put Alan in the old school, no disrespect, and he's, but in in the old school library of. She doesn't want to be a real school. You, oh yeah, true. Yeah, how how yeah, old are you, Denise? Yeah, I look at the interaction between the four of you, and it reminds me of exactly what the comedian Lewis Black was saying. When we see government work that way, when we would sit around, have a martini, and get together and work things out and come up with great ideas like Alan came up with. 
or some of the ideas that came out of uh, yeah. Chairman Oxley's side. Well, it's just, I, I have to say that I don't think it's old school. I mean, I left the Hill in 2009, and some of my best friends were Republicans. I mean, we. I think pretty much 2007, 2008, 2009 was the tipping point of when things went bad. I mean, we had some really good relationships because I knew I could trust people, and I could trust them to make a deal, and you don't have that right now on the Hill. I can tell you precisely when it started. When the Republicans took over the House under the Gingrich Revolution, Oxley invited me up for breakfast. He said, I'd like... You know, we've been in the minority for so long, we don't know how to run a committee, and I was wondering if you would advise me on how to run a subcommittee. And I was delighted to do so. He's a great guy. Uh, and we had a nice conversation. Within three days, the new chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee told him that, uh, told him that none of the subcommittee chairmen were going to get to hire their own staff. None of the subcommittee chairmen were going to be able to set the agenda. Things were streaming out of Gingrich's office to the committees and out of the committee chairman's office. To, and that's when the committee structure in the House, at least, began to break down. And I believe that is in large part what has led to where we are today. But, but it, it strikes me, though, that this government shutdown could have been quashed just simply by the interactions of the old school. We hear of Tip O'Neill and Reagan. We hear of You're absolutely we right. hear of every president in the twentieth century and Sam Rayburn. We hear of uh, even Clinton Gingrich had a mutual respect for each other, but that respect's gone. Alan, even on the Senate side, it's still holding on by tooth and nail. We definitely don't see it in the House. Yeah, Senate and House are very, very different. They yeah. always, they always have been. Mm -hmm. It's important to 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 remember that. And back back in my day, and I think there's still some truth to it. More senators make their homes in Washington than House members do. They get six years. They tend to be wealthier. They can come here, often move their families here. Um, it's not. In the old days, almost all senators had their main home here. I think there's, you know, there's a growing number of senators who don't make their main home here, or and or in the need to raise money, even if their home is here, they're they're back in their in their home state more weekends than they used to be to to tend to the home fires and to raise money. But, even, but, but, even, but there's still in the Senate a lot of of Senate of, of Republican Democrat. Strong relationships. You know, we, we look at Vice President Joe Biden back when he was a senator. He never lived in D.C., but would still stick around till late at night to get things done and take the last train out of his Union was, his, He was like living in Maryland or Virginia. Right. He lived. He lived in the extended suburbs. He had the Amtrak trains, which could get him home in in a little over an hour on the on the train. <laughs> That's very unusual. Most of these people, that's just not right. an option. Not reality. Um, but but the, but the Senate still has a lot of a lot of uh, cross party friendships. It's harder to do, harder to do in the House. It's not impossible. There there may be some you know there may be a prayer group. There may be uh, a small caucus. There may be some other odd commonality of interest that brings people together. But. Uh, it, it continues to be a, a challenge 
and, and a bigger one now than it used to be. Well, you know, you know it, it's funny because uh, next week we're going to be broadcasting an exclusive interview that we did with the dean of the house, uh, Chairman John Dingle, uh, where he spent 30 minutes with us in a 30, and did a full 30-minute segment with us, which was very kind of him. But he mentioned the fact that there's just no mutual respect. And it's funny that the old school values that the Senate still holds is allowing them to legislate his comment was the Senate is now legislating, and the House is incapable of doing so because they just don't know each other. They they just don't respect each other the way that the Senate does. I, yeah, I wouldn't. It, for me, it's not. That's not the root cause that they don't know each other. I mean, back in back in the early days, the late seventies and, and early eighties, the Democrats had a lockstep on power in the House. Uh, it was it was a post Watergate proposition. They had big majorities, and they basically didn't have to do give the Democrats anything, and most of the time they didn't give them much. They would throw them a bone from time to time, but the Republicans didn't, didn't, didn't become aggressive about it because they were glad to get any little morsel. When I was the staff director of a, of a Senate committee, we worked with John Dingell's committee and his people and we worked with them. We didn't. We we would try to keep the Republicans in the know, but they weren't in the room. It was us consulting with our Democrat colleagues and Dingle and his people. That's just how it works. But it, it, and they by throwing the occasional bone to the Republicans who didn't expect much, that worked. Along came Gingrich, who said, "Uh-uh." Um, now he took he took power, and they said we're going to do it the way they did it. We're going to take all the power. We're going to con- we're going to control everything from top down, and let these Democrats see how we how how they how they like it. Uh, we didn't like it much. They're not going to like it, and, and to the victor go the spoils. But, but the but, mistake he made was Tip O'Neill never told John Dingle what to do. Hmm. Uh, John Dingle had control, but Speaker didn't control everything. And Gingrich took over. Basically, controlling anything he wanted. Fair. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair Gingrich went too far. That's all he could do. He just he was he had to have it all, and he did, and he pushed it, and uh, it brought him down. And it ran him out. Yeah, but but we also see though that there, there's a lot of there's a lot of simplicity and elements of what made Tip O'Neill very successful that a lot of Republicans, including myself, still see in Speaker Boehner and still are hopeful one day we can get back to that, but he's largely been hampered by, as we talked about earlier, this group of 30 or 40 members that have no respect for the authority or the office of the Speaker, which is odd. And this also brings back a a point that I saw. Congressman Al, watching the Secretary of the Senate walk into the chambers of the House and request to go to conference and be literally shunned by the House is unheard of. Have you seen anything like that? No. 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 But but I was there the first time I heard of President Boone when giving a State of the Union address. And I remember Brock Adams, who had been in the House and had left and had come back as a senator. And he said, Al, he said, I was stunned. I never thought that would happen. Does that go on now? And I said, well, not usually. Well, now it's usually. Yeah. Alan Moore? Oh, I'm sorry. Carl no, Dubin. Carl Dubin. Carl um, Dubin. You know, I, I look at the um, Gingrich years. I remember when he came in as speaker, and there was this K Street project. 
And, uh, you know, you couldn't go to work. You don't let any Democratic lobbyists in your office. Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. Well, I have represented 20th Century Fox and, and was into telecommunications. And I had, I had gone uh, into Republican offices and made a lot of friends. And, and I said to myself, well, I'm just going to go back to, on the Republican offices, I'm going to go back to where my friends were. And I had no trouble. But there were other people who had to had a, you know, hire a Republican in order to have that access, which was, which was horrible. Well, Gingrich was, um, he was just a very bright man who was uh, just absolutely his way or the highway. He was absolutely rigid about that. He and uh, the gentleman from Texas, uh, Tom DeLay, Tom DeLay. Right. who ran the uh, the uh, K Street project. Yes. And it was uh, it was a terrible mistake. It was a mistake because it broke it broke the reality that, that what used to be the system there, where the Republicans were, had been in the minority, and Chip was not the kind of a guy who went like he didn't put his thumb in your eye. He he always made sure that the Republicans got something as much as he could do so. I mean, Chip, Chip made it a, a, a practice to make sure that he didn't screw the Republicans to the wall. And that meant that there weren't crazy revolutionaries in the House because everybody, everybody knew they were going to get something out of it if they worked together. Uh, once, once Gingrich got there, the game stopped. If you weren't a Republican operation, you didn't get crap. And that's all you did get. You know, I guess you did get crap. But that was it. I mean, it was a it was a basic fundamental mistake, and it uh, it is it is no better today. And I, rem I I remember they fired every Republican staffer who had ever worked with the Democratic staff, which meant they fired all of their talented people. <laughs> what they had left was a bunch of people who couldn't find the battle. Well, under smart, under Bliley as chair, and all the smart young young men and women went downtown and got good jobs. Got rich. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we all were very happy. No <laughs> kidding. <laughs> we were all very happy. But, what the hell? But Alan, when when we do see, you know, when, when we when we do look back and we look at the Senate and and I can't believe we're going to say this, the success of the Senate in literally trying to govern rather than be elected, as opposed to the House. It's still something that is elusive into the senior leadership in the House. Eric Cantor, Kevin McCarthy, Nancy Pelosi, and Denny Hastert. Denny Hastert's probably the one who's truly old school. Um, why can they not sell it in the House? It's just a whole, you know, I, the House and the Senate are very, very different, and it's really hard to, to from the outside to look in and say, why can't the House be more like the Senate, or why can't the Senate be more like the House? And we talk about that in different ways uh, around this table. It's they're they're really quite different animals um, in in uh, in what their rules are, and how long people are elected for, and what in what it is that they represent, um, and uh, in their history, their culture, and so on. Now, what's happened is that a, a, a quite a few former House members have come to the Senate. And they bring house-like behavior 
over to the Senate, where all of a sudden, for the first time, they can get recognition and talk all day if they want to, and 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 abuse the the, the sort of time-tested system, and then they have to make adjustments, or they don't make adjustments, and then if they won't make adjustments, then the leadership has to start bending the rules to make to to control debate and keep people from talking. Again, it's stuff we've talked about. Um, we're sorting our way through all of this, and we're sorting our way in this post-economic meltdown environment that we've talked about, and and we're still struggling with the damage of the last seven, eight years. Congressman Al, I think one of the characteristics that got us to this point is who started. Bob and I had a conversation once about the fact that. Uh, Supreme Court justices had been appointed on two partisan basis, and I threw one at him, and then he threw another one at me, and then I threw Abe Fortas at him, you know, and we went back, and, and I said, wait a minute, I'll bet you if we kept this up, we could all get all the way back to John Marshall, <laughs> you know, in terms of who started it. And I just had a little tantrum here in the last hour, you know, really over who started it. And I think that's a big problem up there of being able to forget who started it and figure out who can start working together. Yeah. Bob Hines. I want to follow up on what uh, Alan was saying about the differences. Uh, and it's a little bit, I don't mean the lecture, but think about it this way. The Constitution of the United States deliberately is structured, deliberately structured to make them different animals. The senators have six years. That means they don't go to have to be elected as often, so they can be more, quote, statesmanlike, if that's an appropriate phrase. In the House, they're, in the Senate, you're talking about a state. You're having representing an entire state. And obviously, you know, part of Virginia is very different than another part of Virginia. Every state has those realities. In the House, you're dealing with much closer population groups, uh, you have 20 districts, you have, let's say you have 12 or 14 districts in the House, so you've got 12 or 14 different, and probably there are a number of different viewpoints. We have to understand something about the system. The system, the Constitution was put together by the guys who were so smart that they knew how to make sure that they were going to get a broad representation and get both a, a, a hot-blooded body and a more thoughtful body, and that's what the Constitution says. The problem is we got people today who don't want to deal with what reality they have in the Constitution. Wow. Uh, round the table real quick before we go to tell me a story. How long does the shutdown last? Congressman now? Four days. Bob? By the end of the week. Two weeks. Denise? Two weeks. Wow. Before next Tuesday when we're back around this table. Two Carl? Week. Two weeks. Uh, it's actually by close of business Friday. That's the correct answer. Okay. It's time, time, it's time for my favorite part of the show. It's telling me a story where we talk about the latest news, the news gossip, and latest things happening inside the Beltway, outside the Beltway, and anything we want to bring up. Carl, I neglected you for the past three weeks. Carl, you go first. Carl, come and tell me a story quickly. A friend of mine went to uh, the Burtonsville Parade and uh, talked to some Republicans and talked to some Democrats, and one of the Republicans said to him, you know, John Boehner is doing this so he can get rid of the Tea Party. 
Wow. <laughs> Alan Moore, go ahead. Tell me a story, Alan, in two minutes or less. Can I tell you a story, or does it have to be the, a crazy idea? No, tell me a story. We'll, we'll let crazy ideas go. <laughs> so when we worry, when we think about who who is not working now in government, what got shut down, one of the places that gets shut down is the Centers for Disease Control. These are the guys who try to keep track of diseases, particularly in America, that are threatening. And about a week and a half ago or two weeks ago, the CDC came out with a report that ought to scare the shorts off of all of us because it talks about about special uh, infections that are that are being that, that people are picking up in medical facilities, hospitals, clinics, doctors' offices, and and these are things that that our current group of antibiotics can't cure. That's why they're so frightening. And la- it's estimated that last year twenty. 3,000 people here in America died of these infections that they picked up in medical facilities. I won't name some of them, right. but I'll mention that one of them that, 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 that is totally uh, antibiotic resistant, 9,000 infections, half those people died. And oh, by the way, CDC, non-essential. Denise Krebs, tell me a story. One minute. Well, we've been uh, talking... CNN's been reporting about the civil disobedience that was committed by uh, several World War II veterans today. As part of the shutdown, the World War II memorial was shut down. Those gentlemen, recognizing that their government had shut down, merely lifted the barricades and went straight in. So good on you guys. Good on you and good That was you. a neat story. Absolutely. Bob Hines, you have a story? Very quickly. Uh, John Boehner is going to come out of this stronger than when he went in. Because I think enough of the people in the House on the Republican side realize how stupid it was to try to do this, to try to do it three times in a row over five days to send the same things or the same type of things over to the Senate, and I think that people are going to re- begin to realize that there's a better way to, than banging your head against a wall. And once they learn that, and I think some of them have or beginning to. Mr. Boehner's going to be just fine. If he wants to stay in the House as Speaker, he's going to be able to do so. Congressman Allen. If Oxley's analysis is correct, you will be correct. Tell me a story. Very quickly. I've already told you the story about, I think, that the gentleman from Texas, Mr. Cruz, needs to be watched very closely. And under the heading of, it can't happen here, I would remind you of Aaron Burr. I'd remind you of Huey Long. I'd remind you of Joe McCarthy. Keep an eye on Ted Cruz. Wow. And uh, two things. Real quickly, the government shutdown has apparently the Naval Academy in Annapolis, West Point, the Military Academy, the Coast Guard Academy in London, Connecticut, the Merchant Marine Academy at Kings Point, New York, have all been told that you will not have football this weekend as long as government shutdown. The government shutdown has canceled football games in the NCAA. That's just nuts. Uh, that's really going to aggravate the public. Oh, that's, oh let me tell you something. Go, go Bears. Um, the other thing is, uh, Chairman of Transportation Infrastructure, Bill Schuster, Bud Light, son of Bud Schuster, uh, very prominent, very practical Republican in the House, is facing a uh, challenge in the primary by a Tea Party retired Coast Guard captain named Art Halverson. Art Halverson on his website has said, and I quote, he has made the claim that 
Art Halverson uh, led the largest transformation of the Coast Guard in more than 100 years. He was a pivotal leader in transferring the Coast Guard from the Department of Transportation to the Department of Homeland Security after 9-11. That is blatantly wrong. Watch out. Art Halverson is playing Tea Party politics. Art Halverson is spewing stuff that is blatantly incorrect. He's got a lot of explaining to do about that, and it's got a lot of his fellow Coast Guard officers at, up in arms saying, hey, what are you talking about? He needs to be called out on that. On that, from Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Denise Krepp, Alan Moore, and Carl Tubin, uh, special thanks again to uh, Chairman Mike Oxley for joining us. I am your moderator, Justin Russell. Next week, we will broadcast an exclusive interview with the Dean of the House, John Dingle, who will give you some great insight over his 57-year career in the House. And uh, Denise Krepp, we've also got a uh, latest edition. Chris Carney will be coming. Former Congressman Chris Carney from Pennsylvania, who will be joining us as well. Uh, and, and Mr. Mark Olson, who is a former federal uh, Fed. Oh, Fed board member Mark Olson, former Mark Olson. member of the uh, federal. And he will be here next week. Yeah, so we're going to have a jam-packed show next week. In... I won't be here. Why are we going to show? <laughs> well, you don't have to. Thanks a lot. You've been, you know what? You've been furloughed. Uh, on behalf of everybody here, thanks for listening. Check in next week. Check out our tweets, and we'll see you next week live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? Boy, isn't this the place to be. It absolutely is the place to be. We'll see you next week, folks. Have a great week. Bye-bye.